I want to greet you this morning. My name is Andy Nelms, and I have the privilege of being the associate pastor. I'm so excited to get to share with you this word this morning. We are currently in a sermon series called The Art of Neighboring. Um, as we learn how Jesus has called us to be a neighbor. Um, we uh, learned a couple of weeks ago about the story of the Good Samaritan in which um, Jesus uh, says that the, the most important thing that we can do in life is to love God and love our neighbor. Uh, if you're familiar with the passage, you know that the one to whom Jesus said this then asked the question, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus explains this story um, about the most unlikely person becoming a neighbor. And that is a great story and, and, and a great interpretation of the term neighbor. But what we find is that sometimes what we do, especially if we've been a part of the church for a while or if we've known Jesus a long time, what we do sometimes is we apply the term neighbor to everyone and inadvertently apply the term neighbor to no one. And so what if we, in turn, attempted to love our literal neighbors, those people that lived right next door to us, those people to whom God has entrusted to us to love as we love ourselves. That's what we'll be exploring throughout this sermon series, is about how to love those people that live right next door to us. There's an exercise in a book called The Art of Neighboring by Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon called A Block Map. And, uh, and so if you can see here in this graphic, if you can imagine yourself living in your neighborhood here in the center. And, and if you can, just like in your mind's eye, and, and, and if you have piece, pen and paper with you or, or if you're at home, wherever you are, um, imagine yourself in the center and imagine the eight neighbors who live closest to you. All right, so, so the eight neighbors, the eight homes that live closest to you, if you can, you just have to think about them. And I, and I hope that you'll think of three things about each of those neighbors. Uh, the first thing is their name. Okay, so can you name the, the eight closest neighbors to you? Okay, just, just, just their name. And then the second thing, can you say something about them? Um, not, you know, they drive a red car. Not something that you can observe from your driveway, but something you, you've experienced from having conversation with them, right? Um, you know, they, they uh, work here or um, they are originally from here. Something, something that describes them. Can you say something about the eight closest neighbors to you? And then the third thing is, can you describe their hopes and their dreams, their fears, their anxieties, their goals in life, something that describes their passions, their beliefs, their understanding about life. What Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon discovered in the book The Art of Neighboring is that less than 1% of Christians can name the hopes, dreams, and goals of the eight closest neighbors. How come if Jesus gave us this commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves, why are the Christians the ones falling short of this goal? And if we think about this task, and, and I hope that you will not feel shame or guilt. As Christians, we are released from shame and guilt through Jesus Christ. So I hope that you don't feel shame and guilt, but we feel empowered, right? We feel encouraged that if we don't know these names, if we don't know something about them, if we don't know their hopes, their dreams, or their goals, that we might feel encouraged to, to attempt that throughout this series, maybe even throughout this year, maybe put this up on a refrigerator or, or make this a goal of ours as a family that we can learn these names, do these things throughout this time. So I hope we don't feel discouraged, but that we feel empowered to do this. 
Because Christians are the ones that were mandated by our Savior to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, now, of course, the, the global pandemic has put a damper on loving our neighbor, right? But I, I hope we will know this. We can be socially distant without being socially isolated. Man, if this year has taught us anything, it's learning the difference between distance and isolation. Right? Those of us who, who, you know, squirreled away in our homes, myself included, when the pandemic first hit, you know, we were, we were at home. We did online school for a year. We, we did all of these things and we learned what it was to be distant and not isolated. How important it was to reach out, to contact, to touch base with those people who were on the outside and, and, and be connected. Friends, I, I know there's a global pandemic still going on at this time, but I hope we will learn the difference between distance and isolation. And, and as we think about this task of, of loving our neighbor, as we think about this task of, of learning the names of our neighbors, of learning their hopes, their dreams, having conversations with them, as we think about this task, one of the things that we might think of is time. How, how long is this going to take? Right? Because here's maybe the truth that, that we don't have time to love our neighbors. You know, even in the midst of a pandemic, our, our schedules get full very quickly, you know, and, and we have these priorities. We have these things that we are doing, and, and most of the time we are in a hurry. And when we get home, the last thing that we want to do is be interrupted, right? And maybe we're one of those that, you know, we drive in the driveway, open the garage door from the inside of our car, the garage door comes up, our car goes into the garage, and the garage door closes before we ever get out of the car. You know, we, we, we don't have time to love our neighbors. Friends, I, I hope we will know this. You can't love in a hurry. So slow down. You can't love in a hurry. So slow down. I remember there's a time uh, I, I was with some friends of mine and, and we were all men, we were all fathers and we were all just kind of talking about, you know, the difficulties of, of being a dad and, and, and the times in which we get frustrated. And, and a friend of mine was sharing that uh, he and his family were in a particular rush one day. His wife was out and so it was just he trying to get his three daughters in the car and getting to an event. And, and the youngest one was, you know, dragging her feet. You know, they were all ready and you look down and the youngest one didn't have her shoes on and, and, and so we sent her upstairs to go get her shoes on and you know and it seemed like forever and he went up there and she wasn't looking for her shoes you know she had gotten sidetracked doing something else and so we you know got her downstairs and they were all inside and he got him out to the car and, and he gets all in the car and he looks back in the back of the car and realizes that the youngest one is still on the outside of the car still waiting out in the yard and, and so in frustration and anger um, the, the, the dad cried out and he, he said get in the car, darn it, but he didn't say darn it, you know, and just one of those bad lapses in judgment, right? And, 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 and the daughter responded, I'm not a darn it, but she didn't say darn it. And then the dad just, oh my gosh, you know, just one of those moments of, of just, you know, uh, when you realize, you know, you've made a mistake as a parent. And so he, you got out of the car and he apologized and, and, you know, and helped her into the car and helped her buckle her seatbelt. And what we realize, friends, is that we can't love 
in a hurry. When we are rushed, when our time is full, when, 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 when our schedules are packed, when, when, when we don't have enough time, we don't have enough time to love. J. Pathak and Dave Runyon say that we tell ourselves three lies about time. We tell ourselves three lies about time, and, and I hope that we, again, will not feel guilt or shame about this, but we'll feel encouraged. The three lies about time are this. First is this, that things will settle down someday. You ever told your this honesty moment right here, right? Some of us have told this, things will settle down someday. Those of you who said that, did it ever settle down? No, right? Like, like it, things will not settle down someday unless we make a decision for things to settle down. Right? The, the first lie about our time is that things will settle down someday. It's a lie. They will not unless we make the decision, unless we cut some things out. The second lie is this. More will be enough. Oh, more will be enough is a lie we continually tell ourselves. As soon as I, you know, get this promotion, as soon as we make this much money, then I'll have more time. You know, we all have the same amount of time. We all have 24 hours in a day. It doesn't matter how much money we make. We all have 24 hours in a day. More will not be enough. More will not be enough. The third lie is this. Everybody lives like this. Everybody lives like this. It's not just us that are hurting right now. It's not just us that are stressed. It's not just us that are having these fights with our children, with our spouse, with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors. We're not the only ones having these kinds of problems. Everyone lives like this. No, they don't. And you don't have to either. That's the good news we hear about in the Gospel of Mark, the passage that Donna read this morning. And, and I'm going to recap it just really quick. It, 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 the story that we read this morning breaks up into two or, or even three parts. And the first part is in which Jesus hears of this need. We read about it in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Verse 21. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to use it this morning. If you, um, if you use your phone or, or however you engage with your Bible, whether you're at home or in person this morning, I encourage you to use your Bible. We read this in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, verse 21, that when Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side, he's on the Sea of Galilee. He was on the Greek side of the sea, the wrong side of the sea, and he has crossed over to the Jewish side of the Sea of, the sea of Galilee. One of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she, might be, so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. So many things about this passage, right? Jesus is actively doing ministry. Jesus is engaged with ministry. Jesus is doing the work that he is called to do by God. He has been on the Greek side. He has been reaching out to those who were really like on the furthest outside of the outside, the Greeks, the Hellenists, these, these other people that are trying to oppose their culture on us and we're pushing back. Jesus goes to the Greek side and now he's on his way back. He gets in a boat and he goes across the Sea of Galilee. And as soon as he gets off the boat, right, as soon as he gets off the boat, Jairus comes to him and, and asks him, Jesus, my daughter is sick. 
As soon as he gets off the boat, you ever gotten out of the car home from work and, and, and get immediately asked to do something? You know how exhausting that is? Can you imagine traveling by boat? You know, traveling by boat, you've been engaged in ministry with, with all these people and now you're in the boat and, and you think, you know, like I'm finally going back home. I'm finally going back to my hometown. I'm finally going back to where things are familiar. And as soon as he gets off the boat, Jairus says, my daughter is sick. How many times has Jesus been encountered like this? With this pressing matter, with this urgent need. If you don't do something now, Jesus, my daughter will die. And so he went with him. He went with him. Friends, I hope we know that Jesus lived an interruptible life. Jesus had enough margin in his life to be interrupted for the important things. Right? It wasn't just that Jesus was willing to give away his time to anybody who came. Right? Like he had a mission. He had a goal and he did those things. But when Jairus comes to him, Jesus knew that he had created margin for these kinds of things. Jesus didn't spend his time going from meeting to meeting, going back to back, from this to that. Jesus knew that he needed margin in his life so that he could be interrupted for these kinds of things. Jesus lived an interruptible life. If Jesus, the one who was fully God and fully human, right? Jesus, our Savior, he, he's kind of an important guy in our circle, right? Like if, if Jesus could be interrupted, what does that say about us? What does that say about the interruptions that come our way? How do we respond? I was part of a church back in Oklahoma, and, and, and we had our own beatitude. Uh, beatitudes are our blessing, and, and Jesus uh, gave them in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus gives uh, these beatitudes, you know, blessed um, are, are the hungry, for they will be filled, right? There, there were all these blessings um, for these, you know, kind of like least likely characters or categories of people, and so we had our own. We, we, we took some liberty. We made our own as uh, part of this last church I was at, um, and it goes like this, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape, right? I, I, I love this one, and I find myself using it pretty often, right? Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape, right? If we're, if we're flexible, we can, we, can, we can always bend and turn to the things that are happening around us, but if we're so rigid, if we're so stiff, we'll break, So Jesus lives this interruptible life. He, he gets off of the boat, uh, off the Sea of Galilee, and, and Jairus encounters him and says, my daughter is sick. And so Jesus goes with him. And, 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 and on the way, as Jesus is headed to Jairus' house to, to bless Jairus' daughter, we read this in, in um, a few verses later, Matthew 5, 27 through 29. Um, a woman with a hemorrhage had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had, had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, 
who touched my clothes. So Jesus is on his way, and, 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 and Jesus is gaining in popularity. He, 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 is, he, he is becoming like this really famous person so that he goes into a crowd. Other people just like hear about it and flock to him. And so once Jesus is in Galilee, everybody knows about it. And, and so Jesus is encountered by Jairus. You know, my, my daughter is sick. I, I need you to heal her. And so Jesus starts to go with Jairus. And, and, and I imagine the disciples are, are with him. And, and, but still, like they see this crowd and, and this entourage begins to form around Jesus, right? As he's going through these city streets. And, and here's the thing. And this time it was important that these rabbis, these teachers had only men around them, right? For fear that if a woman touched them at a certain time, that they would be made unclean. They had important jobs to do. They had important responsibilities and they couldn't be bothered um, to take a time apart to, to make themselves clean again. And so it was very important that these women were separate from Jesus and these rabbis at this time. And this woman with the hemorrhage, this full of blood, is very important that she is separate because she is perpetually unclean. There has not been a recent time in her life when she was clean, where she could be in, in contact with another person, where, where she could experience human touch and have the person not burdened in that time. But she has this sense She has this whisper from the Holy Spirit. If I touch his clothes, I will be made clean. Now, now mind you, if she were to touch anybody at this time, it would make them unclean. It, it would do like the opposite of making her clean, right? It, it would make the other person unclean. But she has this sense. She has this feeling. She has this gospel message in the back of her mind, in the deepest part of her heart, that if I touch Jesus, I will be clean. And Jesus turns around and asks this question, who touched my clothes? His disciples, his friends say, Jesus, we're all pressed around you. You know, like everybody wants to be near you and we're bumping and jostling, trying to get closer to you. Everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched my clothes? And Jesus said, no, I, I felt power go out for me. I, I think someone was healed. And this woman not expecting this. Right? This woman who, who, who was not expecting Jesus to, to stop. Right? She thought he would keep going. She thought he would go about his business. He is important. He doesn't have time, she thought. But Jesus stopped. When he determines it's the woman, he tells her, your faith has made you well. Jesus continues these interruptions after interruptions. When he's interrupted, after he gets off the boat, he heads on to a task to heal Jairus' daughter. As he's interrupted in the task in which he was interrupted in in the first place, he stops and, and this woman receives her healing. Jesus goes on to Jairus. Jesus goes on and heals the man's daughter all because he lived an interruptible life. Friends, I want to remind us again, you, you can't love in a hurry. So slow down. 
For, for the love of God, slow down. For the love of your spouse, slow down. For the love of your family, slow down. For the love of your children, for those nearest to you, slow down. You can't love in a hurry. And so, so here, maybe some tasks. So you're thinking, okay, I, you know, slow down. How do we do that? Here are just, I want to give you three things on how to slow down. We've heard the three lies about, you know, about our time, right? The three lies about our time are things will settle down, more will be enough, and, and everybody lives like that. And, and the truth is, no, it won't, no, it won't, and no, they don't, right? But, but here's three ways in which we can create some margin, we can slow down in our life. The first thing is this, actually create margin in your life actually create margin in your life. Don't fill up your calendar back to back to back to back. In fact, that's not the way God wants you to live, right? Um, John Maxwell says it this way, popular writer, business leader. He says, learn to say no to the good so you can say yes to the great. Many times our calendar will fill up by perfectly good things to do. What if in turn we said no to the good so that we could say yes to the great? What if we said no to the, the third sport that our child will play in the fall? What if we said no to the work project that will take over our evenings and our time with our family? What if we said no to more money? What if we said no to more time occupied by this or that? What if we said no to this activity or that thing so that we could live an interruptible life? Create margin in our life. Learn to say no to the good so we can say yes to the great. The, the second thing is this. Eliminate time stealers. There are these things in our life there are these things in our life that, that if we give them an inch, we'll take a mile, right? If, they, if we give them a second, they will take an hour. If we give them a, a, a margin, a, a, a fraction of our brain power, they will take all of our brain power. They're called cell phones, right? Uh, uh, or, or, or they're called um, that, that Netflix series, right? 20-minute episodes are never just one 20-minute episode, right? Whatever it is for you, eliminate these things that are stealing our time. If, if you want, if you say, you know what, I, I need that time. I, I need this escape for, for this period of time. I would encourage you to write down how much time are you going to give to that thing before you engage in it. Write down how much time with your hand on a piece of paper, a post-it note, on your own hand, whatever it is, write down how much time you're going to give to that thing and then commit to that. Why? So that we might actually create margin in our life and we might actually have time to love our neighbors. And the third thing is this, be interruptible. If it was good enough for Jesus, it can be good enough for us. What I'm not telling you is to, you know, completely abandon your task, completely abandon your schedule, completely abandon everything that you have before you, but, but be interruptible. When someone comes in, when you get a phone call, when you get a text, when you get that thing, pray and, and say, God, is, is this you trying to speak to me? Is this you trying to interrupt me, trying to, to, to lead me? And the next thing you would have me do, be interruptible. 
What if we lived this way? What if our kids knew that we intentionally limited our schedule? We, we intentionally limited our, our to-dos so that we could be accessible to them. What if our coworkers knew that we were willing to give them our time, our most valuable resource because it is so limited? What if our coworkers knew that, that we are willing to help them and give up our time? What if our neighbors, especially those eight closest people who live closest to us, especially those people who have no relationship with Jesus Christ or a faith community of people who are willing to love them, then for no other reason because they were created by God. What if our neighbors knew that we lived in such a way that it allowed us the time to care for them? If we lived in this way, others might believe we are Christians. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.